Extraordinary Districts, a podcast about ordinary districts that get extraordinary results. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all children deserve a high-quality education, and we're going to districts that have demonstrated that they have something to teach the field. In Season 1, we profiled three districts, and in Season 2, we're profiling three more. But this time, we're also convening panels of experts to talk through some of the lessons that educators, advocates, and policymakers can take away from the districts. Today, we have a terrific panel to talk through what we heard in Episode 2, Exposing and Learning from Expertise, in which we profiled Lane, Oklahoma. Lane, Oklahoma is a small rural district that has improved enormously over the years, and we're going to discuss some of the things that the folks in Lane have said contributed to that improvement. I hope you've listened to the episode, but if you haven't yet, stick around. We'll walk you through. For our discussion, we have a really stellar panel. Dr. Timothy Shanahan is well-known to teachers and reading researchers around the country. He is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he was founding director of the UIC Center for Literacy. Previously, he was director of reading for the Chicago Public Schools. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Prior to what we laughingly referred to as his retirement in 2018, Dr. Steve Tozer was professor and university scholar in educational policy studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and founding director of the UIC Center for Urban Education Leadership, as well as founding coordinator of the UIC EDD program in urban education leadership. Since 2018, he has been consulting with a number of districts and universities. He and his work was featured in the first season of Extraordinary Districts in the episode in Chicago. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Karen. I'm looking forward to the discussion today. And we're joined by Todd Hughes, Senior Director of IT Services, as well as Director of the Summer Learning Program for the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. His title doesn't really cover all of what he does. He coordinates many of the education programs of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, which covers a quarter million people and 10 and a half counties of southeastern Oklahoma. There are 86 school districts in the tribal boundaries of the Choctaw Nation, including Lane and Cottonwood, which we'll be talking about. And through his work, he is able to link them through data and other information. Thank you so much for traveling to Chicago for this paddle and discussion. The Choctaw Nation is very privileged and honored to be about today's discussion with such an elite panel of experts. Thank you, Karen. To begin with, let's talk about what Extraordinary Districts is trying to accomplish. We know that there are many educators, advocates, and policymakers who want schools to improve, but are sometimes stymied in knowing exactly what to do. There is some really good research that can be helpful, but it isn't always easy for educators to separate good research from bad. And it isn't always obvious how to put even the best research into practice. So we're doing what Harvard researcher Ronald Edmonds advised 40 years ago. He said we should look for schools that have the outcomes we desire and then study them to see what they do differently from less effective schools. We're looking at districts, not schools, but the idea is the same. To find districts, we use an analysis by Sean Reardon, professor of poverty and inequality at Stanford University. He has analyzed data from more than 12,000 districts. Overall, he has found a strong correlation between poverty and academic achievement. But there are lots of interesting exceptions, and Extraordinary Districts is exploring some of those exceptions. Steve, you've been around the field of education research for a long time. Do you think this approach is helpful? Yeah, I really do. It's, uh, uh, Edmonds influenced uh, quite a number of researchers um, who came after him. Uh, to focus on these outliers that demonstrate what kids are really capable of. In fact, if you recall Edmund's, uh, one of his more famous remarks was, um, how many examples do you need to see of poor children succeeding at difficult academic tasks before you realize that all poor children can do that? And then he went on to say, if you need to see more than one example, maybe you have your own reasons for believing that kids from low-income families can't learn. So it's a real challenge to us in the profession. And uh, I think that uh, a, a part of what's valuable about these examples isn't just what we can learn about how they did it, but the fact that we can learn that, that kids from low-income families are absolutely capable of high performance. And Lane is a good example of that. 
I think that looking at school districts that are similar to your own, that have the outcomes that you desire, is a very intelligent way for school improvement. Uh, the example we're talking about today with Elaine it's an, is an example of that. You know, they found a school that was very similar uh, to their school district that had outcomes that they desired. And, you know, so they went and visited that school, you know, to see what they were doing. Uh, one thing we do at the Choctaw Nation is we, we try to uh, foster a lot of collaboration between all of the schools in a, in, in a variety of ways, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But this kind of research uh, essentially is good for identifying variables. You know, you start to figure out what might uh, have made a difference, and, and then you have to test those to see if you can really transfer it to elsewhere or whether there was some local reason why they were able to pull that off. But if you're looking for uh, uh, possible variables that would determine success, I mean, what better place to look than these schools that are doing better than you'd ever expect? So, so Todd, you, you work with more than 80 school districts in the Choctaw Nation. Uh, some perform better and some perform worse. What, what do you do specifically to help schools identify expertise and learn from it? So we do. Uh, currently, we have 86 school districts in the Choctaw Nation that we work with. All, all of those are public school districts. And, uh, you know, re research suggests that schools should use a broad ruler to measure their performance. At the Choctaw Nation, we collect and aggregate the data as a whole. We don't necessarily share individual results, but we share the whole with all 87 school districts so that they can see how they stack up against the whole, if that makes sense. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that uh, <clears throat> we do is we, we, pilot, we pilot programs quite often. The Choctaw Nation doesn't just throw money at, at programs. We do date, extensive data collection and, and we pilot things. And uh, things that are successful, we are certain to share uh, with all of the school districts. We meet with them in a variety of ways, which I'll share with you a little bit further into the podcast. Well, that's kind of a trigger word for me, pilot, because so often in education, school districts or schools will pilot something, they'll get the results, their results will even be pretty good, and then they discard them and move on to the next fad. So I hope, <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming that what you are talking about is not that. <laughs> it's not. Uh, you know, we kind of collect data and we make sure that we are getting the outcomes we desire before spending a lot of money. So... Sean Reardon found that no other large or moderate-sized district could match the growth of Chicago, which is why I profiled Chicago in the last season. Um, it got six years of growth in five, in five calendar years. And that is extraordinary. But there are some small districts that get that kind of growth, and Lane, Oklahoma, is one of them. Since Reardon's analysis, Lane has improved in absolute academic achievement as well. When I went to Lane, I found what I thought was a fascinating story of educators very deliberately and systematically improving their practice and in turn seeing their students improve. The beginning of their improvement was when then Superintendent Roland Smith visited nearby Cottonwood District and saw how they were teaching early reading skills to their three and four year olds and teaching their kindergarten children to read. Here's Sharon Holcomb, an administrator in Lane District, talking about what happened. And we looked at data again, we looked at the state data and tried to see what schools in our area that had similar demographics as far as special education, free and reduced lunch, those type of things that were doing well. And Cottonwood was closest school to us that was performing excellent. And we contacted Mr. Daniels and asked if we could come and tour and, and just get you know an idea of what they were doing. And he was most welcoming and let us come. So educators in Lane saw that Cottonwood was doing well and called Cottonwood's superintendent to ask if they could see why. That seems so simple, so obvious, but you have all spent a lot of time in schools. Can you talk about what the obstacles are to this kind of work? Yeah, I'll start on this one. Um, I think this whole Lane story is, uh, is, a, is a pretty vivid story of the relationship between leadership and, and quality instruction. Um, the um, it was made clear in the course of the of the narrative that um, school leaders put in place the opportunities for teachers to learn to change and improve their own instructional practice and teachers embraced this they took the ball and ran with it and um, I think that uh, quite often 
Um, so if I, if I could summarize sort of using um, terminology that Ken Leith would put on the table about 20 years ago, he said what really good leaders do is they lead vision, uh, they lead people, so you develop the people to enact the vision, and you lead systems that help people grow into becoming the kind of people who can enact the vision. And so often you have a kind of a vision but the, a vision for an improved school, for example, or a vision for better literacy instruction. But you don't know how to grow the people uh, in the building to make that happen. And you don't know how to put the systems in place to grow the people to make that happen. So um, the, the obstacles are actually quite significant. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, Tim can push back on this possibly, but it's almost like it's not that there are any mysteries about what really good reading instruction looks like. We know what that looks like. Getting a school to look like that is really, really hard because of the people in the systems in this school not currently embodying what we know about really good instruction. So that's a starting thought. I mean, part of his luck in this is he went to a school that really was improving. I mean, I, I think for a lot of school leaders, they find out, oh, you know, somebody else is really excited about the reading program they've put in place. They're not necessarily paying that much attention to, are they actually having results or are they just kind of enjoying and had a good implementation? Uh, you know, th this superintendent man managed to see schools that were actually doing better uh, in terms of kids learning and achievement. That's a, a big deal. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I will push back a little bit, Steve, and just say I think a lot of school leaders uh, don't have that vision. They don't know what it's supposed to look like. They don't know what they're trying to accomplish necessarily. And and then if they do, there's that second variable, which is there's, it takes courage to, to, to actually lead and not just manage. And, and I think for a lot of, uh, of, of school leaders, uh, you know, getting in the budget on time, responding to the board request to do a particular thing, meeting whatever the, the latest, uh, you know, requirements are, is really what the job is about. But this, this notion of, wait a minute, I have a vision for how this could be improved, and I'm willing to put myself on the line to get everybody else to try to see this vision and to follow it. And I think those two things, getting the vision and then finding a way to stimulate it, which is where these guys have real expertise. Yeah, I, I would agree with what you just said. And something else that came out in the, in the Lane story that's really interesting is one of the teachers emphasized, we didn't just transplant what they did at Cottonwood into Lane. It wasn't, it wasn't like we could just say, they've got the answers to our problems. Instead, what they said was, we can learn from Cottonwood and we have to co-invent what works for our school. I think that's a really powerful insight. Um, it's very difficult simply to take a model off the shelf and make it work. But the act of collaborative co-invention within a school, led by a leader who understands the importance of co-invention, um, can actually lead people into far, far more effective literacy instruction practices. Well, and I, to me, that that's the exciting, creative part of being a teacher, right? That there is no thing that you can just adopt and read. There are very good scripted programs, and I'm going to profile a district next that has a scripted program. So I'm not against scripted programs, but any program can be screwed up. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And, right? And any good program, you know, even a good program, even willingly implemented, can still not quite work. It requires that co-invention, I think. It does. And, uh, you know, change management is not trivial. You know, for leaderships to implement change is not an easy thing to do. And sometimes, uh, you know, can, can lead to the end of careers at some oh, places. Oh, absolutely. So, That's why I say courage is really, absolutely. really central to this. Um, you, you know, you, <laughs> no one uh, is necessarily going to pat you on the head if, uh, you know, if, if you make a lot of changes, especially if it takes time to be successful with them. I mean, it's a hard job. Well, and I give him a lot of credit because one of the things Sharon Holcomb said was he was a secondary guy which is very typical of superintendents. They're secondary people. They tend to be. They don't understand early reading instruction. And for him to sort of go, oh, I don't really know that, I give him a lot of credit for that. That's the wisdom part of it, and, and that's critical. 
In, um, in fact, when he saw it was going on at Cottonwood, he said, wow, we're doing this all wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I mean, you know, being able to sort of see uh, through a different lens um, that, uh, that my own leadership is not serving the interests of kids well, that's a really significant piece of, uh, mm-hmm. of leadership development as well. Yeah, so much of Oklahoma still embraces whole language, as I understand it, uh, still embraces whole language reading instruction. But what they saw at Cottonwood was really, I think, I'm not a reading expert, but I thought was very sophisticated reading instruction um, that had kind of developed under the leadership of the previous superintendent, Terry Burkeen. She And I don't know what her origin story is in terms of why she uh, realized that um, whole language was not helping her students, but under her leadership, Cottonwood became one of the top performing districts in the state, and her successor, John Daniel, has maintained and improved some aspects of instruction even, such as the science instruction. Dr. Shanahan, what was your reaction to hearing about what, what they saw at Cottonwood? Uh, you know, I guess I, it's, let me start just saying, um, you know, you, you described the, the, you know, the contrast between whole language and, and what they were seeing. Um, one of our problems in reading education is to some extent, everything works. You know, I mean, let's just start from there. Uh, you know, things like whole language get disparaged a lot, but the fact is a lot of kids learn to read through that. And that fools teachers and that fools school leaders into thinking, okay, what we're doing is great. Or, you know, gee, I've taught for 25 years and my kids have always learned to read, so the way I'm doing it is just fine. Uh, it, 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 Part of that wisdom of leadership is to look and say, yeah, it's working, but there are other places where things, other things are working better. And we ha- you know, it, that's, the, that's the real uh, dramatic change. Research is very, very clear that you're more likely to be successful uh, with more explicit teaching, where the teachers have a clear conception of what it is they're trying to accomplish with, with the kids than as usual in, in uh, these more discovery approaches or whole language dis- approaches. Uh, the studies are very, very clear, uh, much more consistency of success and bigger success if you teach certain specific things that are usually left out of, of those kinds of curricula where they're trying to do it largely through motivating the kids to try harder and, and not actually helping the kids to learn. And so, you know, the descriptions, you know, of what was going on in, in those schools, uh, really matches up very well with the best research that we have and the largest meta-analyses that we have and so on. Uh, and so the big part of me says, well, there's no surprise in that at all. And yet, uh, you know, for, a, a, say, a superintendent who do- doesn't know what elementary reading looks like or for a, 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 a teacher who's been doing it a particular way for years and years, they think they're doing fine. Um, because they, you know, gee, we've always had this much failure. We've always had, you know, this percentage of kids, you know, hanging back. Uh, that's what we do. Um, and when someone comes along and says, "I can do this better," uh, that surprises them. And and a lot of times they reject it. In this case, they didn't reject it. They looked and said, "Gee, what we're doing isn't as effective as that. What? Well, let's be more effective." So I think one of the the real lessons is you really have to pay attention to the data, and not not just look at what's in front of you because you can't necessarily see it uh, just teaching or just administering schools. You actually have to compare the data and see, gee, where are we falling short? How could we do better? Todd might have a a specific comment about the local context, but I want to use Tim's remark to go back to your question about what are the obstacles. Um, One way to think about the obstacles are precisely what Tim just said, this is the way we've always done things. So that Stigler and Hebert's book about the teaching gap really focuses on the culture of American teaching. And if we do what Tim just said, just pay attention to the data, we see that the culture of American teaching systematically produces huge differences in kids' reading levels and kids' learning levels in general. That's our standard culture of American teaching is what needs changing. So when you say, what are the obstacles? It's basically most teaching practice needs changing um, if we want low-income kids to actually learn well. 
and it's changing teaching practice that's really so hard uh, for, uh, for uh, principals and other leaders to be, as, as Todd says, um, change managers or change agents. Uh, that's very difficult when the way we've always done things seems to be just fine until we really look closely at the data. Mm-hmm. Well, as these gentlemen alluded to, you know, the scientific research behind reading instruction is clear, but there's sometimes a gap in rural areas between research and practice. And uh, Cottonwood is a good example of a rural area that has embraced the extensive research available and their experience success, success because of their attention to best practice. Uh, so one thing that we're trying to do at the Choctaw Nation is we're trying to close that gap between proven research methods and the rural areas in southeastern Oklahoma. And the professional development is a lot of that. Teachers just don't have exposure to this in rural areas. Well, I, I, I want to let the rural areas off a little bit because it's true in urban areas and suburban <laughs> areas as well. Yeah, it, yeah it, it, in the urban areas, it's you have so many resources uh, they often cancel each other out. They they argue and they you know they're they're not necessarily set up in any coordinated fashion. In rural areas, you know, I get plaintive you know emails from folks who are a hundred miles, two hundred miles from a university. They don't have feel like they have any access to professional development necessarily in their district and and so on and so forth. So. There, in one case, it's a dearth, and in the other case, it's uh, there's just no coordination. But there's a plethora of, of resources. It's almost overwhelming. I talked to one superintendent who said uh, we were rich with program and poor in instruction. You know, it's, mm-hmm. and I think that happens in in better resources. Someone will sell you any kind of package you want, any kind of you know, support you want. Um, that's not necessarily good either. And, it, and it's one thing to embrace the research as as leaders, but these leaders were talking about have enabled their teachers to act upon that research. And that's one of the differences. And professional development costs money. Uh, To get experts to come in and work with teachers is not an inexpensive thing. And that's one of the challenges that we run into in Oklahoma. Absolutely. We we have those challenges in Chicago as well. And, And in fact, when I was director of reading in Chicago, spent millions and tens of millions of dollars, which sounds huge, but you know, compared to the size of the district budget or compared to the size of the workforce in Chicago, it really isn't that big. It just isn't how we've prioritized our spending in schools. So I should say that since I first visited Cottonwood, which was, I think, in 2009, I have kind of kept an eye on it. And what's been interesting to me is that it seems as if Cottonwood's name is known throughout Oklahoma as a high-performing, high-poverty district. But many Oklahoma educators seem to view it quite suspiciously. Either they think it's cheating, I'm just going to say it, um, or they think that somehow the district has more money than others, or that there is some explanation for its success other than good instruction. Mr. Hughes, am I reading that right? Is Cottonwood seen as a district worth learning from or avoiding or both? Well, Cottonwood is consistently a top-performing school in Oklahoma, a top-ten-performing school I would not say that Cottonwood is significantly more financially stable than other districts in southeastern Oklahoma. Karen, nor would I, nor would I question the integrity of their high-stakes assessment procedures. Our opinion is that Cottonwood has been very innovative in their approach to reading instruction, and as I would mentioned earlier, they have embraced the extensive research that is available. And, and applied it within their context. They have. Yeah. Um, In any case, once Lane's superintendent realized he hadn't understood the importance of early reading instruction, he sent teachers to Cottonwood to learn from them, and they have completely changed what they do. They got additional training and brought in a reading coach. And one thing that I thought was exceptionally clever is, and but maybe I... I just haven't been around enough, is that they use their speech therapist who comes twice a week as a language coach for whole classes, uh, particularly the little ones. She will work on a particular sound or skill and then work with the teachers to continue that work throughout the week. She's also working on general language development. Here Here she is talking about what she does. I found that if we introduce these things to them when they're younger, they're just like sponges. They just take it in, and it's not a big deal. It's kind of like, for an example, fractions. And you think, why would you 
do numerator and denominator with a three-year-old? Well, because if you tell them that's what it is, that's what it is. And so when they're four, five, six, when they get to fifth grade, the vocabulary is not a problem. Okay, what's the numerator? What's the denominator? So they may have a fraction up on their, that may be part of their um, vocabulary in the morning. So they may be doing the months of the year and the days of the week, but they may also be doing that. If our teachers up here identify a vocabulary that's a problem and these kids are struggling with, we try to streamline it all the way back down to the younger ones and go with it. Because if they hear that every day, it's just going to be a word they know. It's going to be a part of their vocabulary. It's not going to be something they struggle with when we're trying to teach them. So, Dr. Shanahan, what, what did you think about that? Oh, I love it. Uh, and, and, I mean, speech and language teachers do that kind of work. That's what their training is. There's often arguments among the reading community and the speech and language community, but I think uh, for schools to uh, allow those arguments to get in the way of this kind of thing, it would be a huge mistake. I mean, what she's trying to do is build these kids' language, and uh, that's certainly one aspect of, of early reading development. Uh, it's actually, in some ways, a little bit of a confusing element of it, uh, if I can take a minute on that. Um, we did a, a study for the federal government, a, a meta-analysis of research on early skills that predict later reading achievement. And there were like 50 studies that measured children's language and then tried to predict some kind of, of later reading achievement. And we found it was actually a pretty poor predictor, which surprised us. And so we we looked more closely and, and broke down the data. And, and what we were finding is, is that vocabulary was not a very good predictor of how kids did, say, in first and second grade, uh, though gen overall language was. Uh, but vocabulary didn't become a real issue until the, tech, the, the books that kids were going to be reading started to outstrip their oral language, which usually comes second, third, fourth grade, depending on the community. And, and then it becomes a really big issue. And so it's like a time bomb. You know, if, if you improve those three and four-year-olds' language, it probably doesn't raise literacy in kindergarten or first grade very much. But in third or fourth grade, it keeps you from having those kids who seem to be doing so well and then all of a sudden aren't. The fourth grade slump. Uh, yeah, which are often referred to as the fourth grade slump. But again, in some communities, it's a third grade slump or, you know, whatever. But yeah, that's, that plays out like that. Yeah, I, another thing jumped out to me from that particular comment that, uh, that, the, uh, that the special ed or the speech uh, specialist made. It goes along with the comment that uh, one teacher made that, uh, um, that, that we are all about inclusion here. And in a sense, you saw two different sides of inclusion. On the one hand, it's inclusion of, of kids identified with special needs in regular ed classrooms, but it's also inclusion of all the kids um, in receiving services from somebody who might be regarded as, as a specialist just for special needs kids. And um, both of these are functions of, of school leadership, which has made the decision, probably in collaboration with teachers, which has made the decision that this is the kind of organization our school is going to have. And, and when kids are in a school that's organized that way, as opposed to a school that's organized differently, the quality of instruction they receive is going to be better than a school that's organized differently. So it's reminding us of uh, Tony Brike and his colleagues' book in, in 2010, Organizing Schools for Improvement, which essentially makes the argument that the quality of instruction isn't just a function of individual teachers. It's how the teachers in a school are organized to work together uh, to support student learning. And this is a great example of that, both in the inclusion and the use of specialized skills in some teachers to deliver that, that specialization to all kids in the school. Another school would make a very different decision about that. And these kids are advantaged because their school leadership made this decision. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, speech therapists work one-on-one -on -one or maybe one-on-two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and only once a problem is there, not necessarily try to head, yeah. head off a problem like this woman yeah. was doing. Right, yeah. exactly. So here's a, uh, you know, quality of instruction here is not a case of whether you hire talented teachers or whether the teachers were trained at the right institution. Quality of instruction in this building is a function of the organization of the building. And I really want to applaud their ability to get those experts to come in. There's not just a highly qualified speech therapist available in southeastern Oklahoma everywhere. So it takes yeah. a lot of work and a lot of coordination to be able to deliver those types of services to our schools in southeastern Oklahoma. Yeah, I think they share her with Durant. Possibly. I think 
uh, it's another district, um, and and that requires some uh, coordination among the superintendents and the. Uh, it's it's quite involved. When I heard about her schedule, I was like. <laughs> Quite yeah. amazed. But that also means using her in this kind of preventative way is even more uh, remarkable uh, because that means she has less time available uh, than uh, would be typical if somebody were assigned to a building full time. So Exactly, yeah. exactly. So Cottonwood isn't the only place Lane has learned from. Uh, one resource that the educators at Cottonwood told me have, has been really important is the education programs at the Choctaw Nation. Here's Sharon Holcomb talking about the training offered. It's very, really good. very good. It's, they're like national, great, national, yeah, speakers national speakers, and, and their, you know, their breakout sessions are, are very good sessions. I think they're doing a lot on reading this year. Last year they did the phonics dance was one of the programs that they had and that they they. They actually put on a class for the teachers and gave them the materials when they left. The teachers had materials in their hand to bring back to school to implement that program. Mr. Hughes, can you talk about the kinds of things that the Choctaw Nation offers the teachers and students of Southeast Oklahoma? I can. That's a big question to I the know, Choctaw Nation. <laughs> just, just so you know, you know, the Choctaw Nation spends millions of dollars each year on education programs that range from literally birth, actually pre-birth, where they start working with the mother, to uh, really people of all age trying to, uh, you know, obtain objectives in the education environment. Collectively, we have about 17 programs in the education department, but for the sake of time, I'll spend just a little bit of time talking uh, about the two things that were referred to by Lane. Uh, one of those being our summer learning program. The summer learning program is a six-week reading intervention program where the schools will identify students that are reading below the 40th percentile or maybe just above the 40th percentile in their middle-of-year reading assessment. Those students are given an invitation uh, you know, to attend the six-week program during the summer. Uh, these, these schools would not be able to afford uh, this type of intervention program, but uh, the summer learning program is one of the programs that they were referring to. The immediate goal of that program is to get students reading on grade level by the end of third grade. Uh, we really, you know, believe in the research that, uh, you know, that's a transition or a pivotal point in a student's career in that they're going from learning to read to reading to learn. So there's a lot of research out there that, uh, that indicates that it's really, really important to try to be on grade level by the end of third grade. So that's kind of what this program is really, really focused on is doing the best we can at getting these children that are behind the curve a little bit up to speed by the end of third grade. Not, not that that's, you know, we'd love to say we're doing that for every child in southeastern Oklahoma, but I think we're making a dent in that. Uh, the other thing they referred to is we, we realized that schools in southeastern Oklahoma, nor, they cannot afford nor can they get national presenters to come to rural southeastern Oklahoma. So every summer we host an early childhood professional learning conference for all of the early childhood teachers in southeastern Oklahoma. And uh, we bring in, uh, you know, proven scientific research-based programs from professional development uh, people all over the United States and maybe sometimes even all over the world. Uh, and it's the only way they're going to receive, uh, you know, and, and it, a little bit about closing that gap between rural America and research. That's kind of our effort to try to close that gap. Gap. These teachers need exposure, and not only do they need exposure to the research, then how to act upon it with these proven programs. So the conference has been extremely, extremely successful. Uh, we would actually like to work in the future to extend the conference. We have about a thousand people that show up at the conference. We, we not only train teachers, though, we train administrators, and that's very rare in southeastern Oklahoma for administrators to get administrative training. And we actually try to coordinate what teachers are getting with what the administrators are getting. And, and just as an example of that, uh, next, next summer we're going to start a series on con uh, conscious classroom management with the conscious discipline people. So we're going to make sure that you know, administrators are hearing the exact same message that their teachers are hearing. So we coordinate a lot of administrating training during that conference also. 
uh, Ron Ferguson in, in the panel discussion that we had kicking off this season, he said that he knows that if he comes to do professional development and the principal introduces him and leaves, <laughs> it, it's not going anywhere. And same thing if if he if the superintendent comes and introduces him and leaves, it's it's just not going anywhere. He might as well just leave at that point. And, and I would share with you, we probably have about 150 administrators participate in that training, and about 700 teachers are participating. That's really extraordinary. Um, one of the things that I said in the podcast is that. Uh, I think Oklahoma has been starving at schools of resources for years, which I assume would kind of amplify the importance of what you're doing in the Choctaw Nation. Is that right? It is. You know, Oklahoma revenues are very sensitive to the price of oil. So the drop in oil prices in recent years led to revenue shortfalls that forced cuts in state aid to all government programs, including schools. The good news is Oklahoma is recovering and teachers saw a much needed raise last year. The per-student allocation in Oklahoma is still one of the lowest in the nation, and this makes outside support crucial to many of our school districts. The resources provided by the Choctaw Nation definitely make a difference for our schools. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about the story of Lane is that it combines two of what I think are the most important topics in district improvement, reading instruction and the importance of school and district leadership, which is to say, and we've already kind of talked about this a little bit, it took um, both leadership and in, in improvements in instruction. Um, but Steve, can you kind of elaborate a little bit more on this whole leadership issue? Or, or maybe you've already said. No, I, there's, there, I'm really glad you asked because there's one thing I left out, but I must say that I'm, I'm just struck with Todd's remarks just now because it becomes evident that in a state that is struggling um, with respect to its support of public schools, the Choctaw Nation is actually supplementing the state's ability to provide development and support for teachers, right? And we're, we're accustomed to thinking of it quite the opposite, you know, which is that the, the mainstream culture supports the, uh, the native cultures. And, this, and here's a case of where the Choctaw Nation is really making a really profound contribution to the development of teachers. And Steve, I want to be yeah. fair to yeah. the state of Oklahoma, State Department. I mean, we have a seat at the table and the state, the state Department of Education in Oklahoma, they embrace the tribes and, uh, and what they have to offer our school districts. Uh, our, our state superintendent uh, is, is certain to have tribal, you know, tribal leadership at the table uh, to consult with. And the Choctaw Nation is not the only no. tribal right. leadership yeah, right. as well. Not There's, at all. But it's a very nice example, right? Right, you know, it it is. Again, one to learn from. So the other thing I want to say about this is no matter what gets done at the state level, um, how that gets translated into the building level um, is, is deeply a function of leadership. And one of the things that we see uh, in Lane, and we uh, also saw it in Cottonwood, but since we're focusing on Lane here for a second, this whole notion of teacher teams uh, as places where teachers are learning to improve the quality of their instruction, this is where leadership is providing teachers with the time and the resources to get together and learn together by addressing the problems of their own professional practice. And so it's not just problem solving, it's learning to become different teachers as a result of that collaborative problem solving. So one of the big themes that came through for me here as a kind of a strong leadership function is school leaders that didn't assume they had all the answers. And one way to say that is these are school leaders who didn't see teachers as the problem to be diagnosed. They saw teachers as the diagnosers of their instructional problems. And that's, um, that's boy, that comes through really strong in this particular uh, uh, case. And it's one that uh, doesn't happen without leadership to help make it happen. There's that culture of trust that Anthony Bright, that Tony Bright talks about in in uh, in his I think 2001 trust, book. Trust, trust in schools, yeah. Trust and, in schools, and I, and I think that uh, the teachers called this out explicitly in this case. You know, they say it, it became a safe place for us to admit what we didn't know and to learn what we need to know. Well, that's that's pretty, which is big because yeah, uh, teachers. Yeah. I, I I talked to the teacher once who had kind of, she was a 
career changer. And so she was in business. She had been in business. She was used to asking for help. And she became a teacher. And she went to her principal and said, I'm having trouble with this something or another. And the principal said, that will be reflected in your evaluation. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you don't know something, that's often really stigmatized within the teaching profession. Sure. I can't emphasize enough our, our efforts to bring professional com- learning communities from multiple schools together. Uh, we have teachers for focus group meetings from multiple districts that get together in the spring and the fall, and they love it. They love talking to teachers from other schools and listening and learning from what they do. We do the same thing with administrators. Uh, during the summer learning program, we use closed uh uh, social media groups where 600 teachers are showing and sharing ideas about what they're doing uh, during that summer intervention program. Uh, Wait, how do you do that? You did So we have closed Facebook groups that oh. only, the, the summer loading program is theme-based and you rotate through four different themes. So whatever theme they're working in, those teachers can join that Facebook group uh, by permissions of us. And then they begin to share all of the ideas and the things they're doing. So we have 600 teachers that are talking and communicating, collaborating, sharing photos, pictures, ideas of what they're doing doing during the summer. Not just that, STEM activities, field trips, and things like that. So, uh, you know, the collaboration. Uh, and is that all data-based or is that more anecdotal-based? Anecdotal-based. Anecdotal-based. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm going to make a confession here. After I finished the episode last season on Chicago's improvement, I realized that it was also a story of both leadership and improved instruction. I spent a lot of time in the podcast exploring the question of leadership, and I kind of left out the question of uh, uh, instruction. But now that I have you here, Dr. Shanahan, I wonder if you could help fill in that gap a little. As the former director of reading for Chicago, can you tell us how you thought about improving reading instruction in Chicago. And, I mean, big, huge, urban district. Is there any commonality with Lane? Oh, little tiny Lane. There's commonality. The teaching of reading is not that different, you know, from one community to another. Uh, all the things the adults do around instruction might differ, you know, for cultural reasons or economic reasons. But ultimately, what it takes to learn reading is going to be pretty consistent from community to community. So, you know, I've I've looked at the research as carefully as I can, and I've served on various and chaired various uh, national panels to review the research. So I've probably looked at it as closely as anybody. Um, I think it comes down to three things. I mean, I, I. Todd has given so many examples of of these things. I think it's useful to think about sort of what are the bones that are making those things work rather than, gee, I've got this federal grant to set up a particular kind of program and I'm going to set it up and, hey, we've been successful. And I think that the three things are that that stand out across all kinds of research is the amount of instruction that kids get or the amount of you know academic experience. And so you know when I listen to Todd talking about the summer programs and the after-school programs. And gee, we're working on discipline so that we don't lose school time. And gee, we've got preschool, so we're pulling kids in at three and four so they're getting a year or two of extra. So, you know, that's all time. That's all, how do we make sure that these these kids who are, are, are growing up with certain disadvantages aren't disadvantaged in the amount of academic experience they get. So that's one. And you can talk about that as the out-of-school stuff and what families can do, but you, in school, we often don't use the school day very well. We lose a lot of school time. Here in Chicago, our studies here show that, uh, that within a school, within a single school uh, in the district, uh, you can have two teachers at the same uh, school district teaching side by side, and one of them is teaching 100% more than the one next door. I mean, so amount of instruction is big. A second one, you've mentioned science of reading, that's usually focused on what is it that you're teaching. There's certain things that the research just overwhelmingly says, if you teach those things, kids do better. So it's sort of, you know, why don't we all teach those things? But when we visit classrooms, we see, well, what kinds of things work? Well, teaching kids phonemic awareness, which just refers to making sure that those little ones can actually perceive the sounds within words. Uh, you know, little kids don't do that very well. So making sure they can 
makes it easy to learn to decode. Phonics, explicit phonics instruction is a real benefit to young kids. Places where that just doesn't happen. That might be an individual classroom, that might be an entire school or even an entire school district. Uh, teaching kids uh, what we call oral reading fluency, which is actually being able to read text, reading the correct words, making it sound like language, reading it quickly enough that you can make sense of it. Uh, we can teach that. There's you know, a substantial body of research behind that. We've talked about vocabulary already, building that up, how important that is. Reading comprehension itself. Uh, there are ways that you can think more effectively when you're reading uh, that we can teach kids to do. And, and one I would add is, is, is teaching kids to write and to use their writing to improve their reading. There are other things that people like to teach, but these are the ones that actually, if you teach these, this is where the, the gains in achievement are. And so, you know, when somebody says, well, I, yeah, but I'd rather do something else, or I don't like teaching writing, or, you know, gee, my university didn't teach me anything about phonics, so I, you know, I'm willing to teach it, but I don't know anything about that. Those are gaps that if a school system figures out how to fill, you know, they can raise achievement. And the final one, you know, time, what you teach, and the third one, is the quality of the of the delivery? Uh, you know, some people explain things better. Some people put in more repetition so that the kids actually get a particular skill. Uh, you know, some teachers can see it in the kids' faces that a, a youngster uh, isn't understanding, and the teacher doesn't just go on, stops and fixes. You know, and so on. Uh, school districts that worry about and, and address the issue of how much instruction and academic experience their kids are getting, who are trying to teach those things that have been identified by science as actually benefiting kids' learning and reading, and who try to do that as effectively and efficiently as possible are the ones that win. And yeah, yeah you can do it with scripted programs or without scripted programs. You can top down it or have it bubble up from the teachers. You can go see it in another school district and bring it home and try to figure out how to translate it. But ultimately, if you go and look at anybody's success, they've done one, two, or three of those things that I'm talking about. This Choctaw Nation felt so strongly that our schools have a uh, phonics program that they were comfortable with. Uh, that was one of the first things we did before we started the summer learning program is we introduced a phonics program to them and funded it and did all of the professional development. Uh, not that they had to use it. If they were not comfortable with the one they had, it gave them an option. And we feel like all of our schools have now embraced a very strong phonics program. We, we, we introduced a particular one that I believe was alluded to early, earlier. Uh, it's called the Phonics Dance by a teacher out of, uh, I believe she's in Ohio, and kind of kind of integrates phonics to chants and rhymes and themes like that. And our schools have really embraced it. It's not mean. It's enjoyable. It's enjoyable. <laughs> and, and exercise is important. And, and we, we, we address that a lot for children to get up and moving. So it was actually a way to uh, address that also. Well, I did see kids dancing to letters. So yes, <laughs> letters we, and sounds. We Absolutely. have some programs here in Chicago that uh, uh, you know community-based agencies are running, and these aren't educators by trade. These are actually performing artists. They're they're uh, uh, actors and musicians and so on, doing very similar things with phonemic awareness and phonics and fluency in the Chicago schools, and quite successfully. I, I can't uh, help but but note the leadership connection to the three biggies that Tim talked about. Um, one of the things that you see in the Lane uh, case is teachers talking about, here's what we do in our school. <laughs> in other words, it, this was programmatic in their school. This wasn't up to each teacher to decide what they were going to teach or how they were going to teach it. One of the most effective principals that we've ever seen here in Chicago, who got a lot of national recognition, used to visit uh, uh, as, a result, as a result of Tim's work in Chicago Public Schools, there was a two-hour reading block in most elementary schools every morning. And every single day, this particular principal would spend two hours visiting classes during reading. And she's looking at quality of delivery. She's looking at content. And um, here you have a case of where a principal believed in the three principles that Tim was talking about. And she made sure it happened at a high quality level. And the results that she got were, were just phenomenal in a school of 
of 1,300 low-income uh, Latino kids. So um, hence the national recognition that her school got at Rachel Carson. So um, leadership becomes critical to see that these three things happen with quality. Well, the time on instruction is so uh leadership dependent it's so yeah, principal right. dependent yes. the yeah. master schedule of a school um the every single effective principal i've ever kind of talked with one of the first things they do is look at the master schedule one of my favorite stories is from deb gustafson uh in kansas who said when she walked into her school the teachers had organized it so that Every teacher took their class to the bathroom for 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the afternoon. That's half an hour a day. That's like 90 hours of instruction <laughs> over the year, right? She said, I got rid of that right quick. <laughs> or the rural schools that line kids up at 5 after 3 because the buses come at 3.30 and you, you know, can't afford to have a kid miss a bus because the distances are too far to, to take them home. You're you're giving away you know like twelve days of school uh, you know we, we can't afford those kinds of things exactly. When you find a principal that can flex a schedule to meet outcomes, you found a really good principal. <laughs> I think that's a great way to end this. So I this has been a great conversation, fascinating conversation. Is there anything? Uh, I mean, I just said that was a great way to end it, but is there anything we've missed? Is there anything you? Uh, would like to say. I, I do have one thing I want to share with the panel. Uh, you, you have a lot of degrees and hours of expertise here, but I want to share something that my executive director, Mr. Jim Parrish, always says. He says, your greatest academic achievement is the day you learn to read. And, uh, you know, you have a lot of degrees and hours of college education sitting at this table, and he would still say the same thing. He would say that your greatest academic achievement was the day you learned to read. We we have to let Tim say the tagline on his on his uh, Shanahan and literacy blog. Um, nothing is more noble. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's exactly what he just said. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I believe that there's nothing more noble than teaching somebody to read, and so you know that's the way to think of teachers. I, I the one thing I'd like to add or say is I, I want to thank you for including me. This is such a hopeful series in terms of its its entire theme. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I, I want to thank all the panel members for taking time out of what I know are very busy schedules. Tim Shanahan, Steve Tozer, and Todd Hughes, thank you very much. This concludes Episode 3 of Season 2 of Extraordinary Districts, which we hope will be helpful for principals, superintendents, school board members, mayors, or really anyone who thinks schools could do better. If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you will consider donating to the Education Trust so that we can continue to find and learn from extraordinary school districts. Please subscribe to the podcast so you'll receive notice of future episodes. And go to our website for lots of information about the districts we profile, the guests we have on our panels, and lots more. Thank you to our sound engineer, Mike Patillo, who also composed our music. And thank you to Jamdeck, where we recorded this podcast episode. And of course, thank you to Overdeck Family Foundation for making possible this season of Extraordinary Districts. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time. <laughs>